And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth and Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. And then we go down to verse 22. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And we just trust the Lord to bless his word to our hearts this morning. You know, <clears throat> I used to be a big fan of boxing. I never watch it now. But I remember the, 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 what I would call the good old days of boxing, the Chris Eubanks and Nigel Baines and, and them. And I always remember that when Chris Eubanks, for example, when, when he came out of the, his changing room or whatever and came into the auditorium, they always played that song, Simply the Best. And of course, he waddled in all psyched up, ready to fight, and everyone was cheering. Barry McGuigan, I remember watching him, and he came in, and he took the tune from Rocky, the Rocky films, and they played The Eye of the Tiger when he marched in, and of course, this psyched everybody up, and the crowds were clapping and singing and uh, bringing in their hero, as it were, into the, the boxing arena that they might, uh, in a sense, worship him as he boxed. And you know, it was the same in biblical times. You know, when an army uh, conquered a land, a general, he would come in to the city and he'd be riding on a great chariot and it would be pulled by a white horse. And the defeated enemy or the people, they would have to pay homage to him. So when the Roman generals would have came through Jerusalem, the people would have been forced out onto the street and would have been made to cheer and to clap. We've seen this recently when the Russian army invaded some of the Ukrainian towns. They forced some of the people to line the roads and they gave them Russian flags and made them wave them as if this was some great victory. In fact, I remember uh, watching a history program when Germany conquered France Hitler, he paraded into Paris in an open-top car with his army, and everyone again had to cheer them and welcome them and thank him for his uh, great deliverance. So <clears throat> people were uh, healed as they came in, especially if they'd conquered a land. They would receive all the accolade of the people. They would be seen as the conquering hero. Now, we know the Jews at the time of the birth of Jesus were a people under Roman uh, oppression. Their land was occupied by a hated enemy. Now, we know that they regarded themselves as the chosen people. And so this would have angered them greatly that this pagan people were ruling over them. But they knew that by their own human means, they would never attain supreme greatness, which they believed their, their destiny involved. So they believed that one day, as we've been looking at, that they would be the masters of the world and indeed lords of all nations. And to bring in that glorious day, they believed that a great celestial warrior, a great champion, would descend upon the earth. 
Others stated that a descendant of King David would arise and he would restore all the glorious old times. Others claimed that God himself would break directly uh, into history and by his supernatural powers and deliver his people. And they believed, therefore, that they would rule all nations and all nations would be tributaries of Israel. This is what they believed. This is what their great anticipated day of deliverance would bring. They were looking for the Messiah to come, deliver them, and stamp all their enemies under his foot. And this was what they, they sought uh, and they were waiting to see this general, as it were, maybe riding in this chariot with this horse. Now, in Matthew 22, when the Sadducees questioned Jesus about the resurrection, you remember it was the wife of seven brothers, Jesus told him in verse 29, you do err not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. And as we've seen as we've looked at Nicodemus, I would suggest that many of the Jews back then and even some people today are not knowing the Scriptures. You see, tradition taught the Jews that the Messiah would be, as it were, a, a mighty warrior, a great deliverer, valiantly defeating all their enemies. Tradition today tells us about this time when we celebrate our Lord's birth, that it's a time of giving because God gave to us, and we take that from the, the, the gifts given by the wise men. But you know, sadly, tradition has taken Jesus out of Christmas altogether, taking Christ out of Christmas. Political correctness abounds today. Just listening uh, to some of the songs, I mean, grandparents will know what this is. Kids TV, uh, Coco Melon. I could sing every song on it. I've watched it that often. But they were singing, uh, they had a Christmas where they were celebrating Christmas and they were singing Happy Holidays. So even at a very young age, and you might think that's insignificant, but children are being taught to sing Happy Holidays and say Happy Holidays instead of Happy Christmas. Now, although it's true that Jesus will return, what are we looking for? What are we looking for when he returns? In Acts 1.11, it says, Ye men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Revelation 1 and 7 tells us, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye will see him. And so concerning his second coming, not his third or fourth or fifth, he's only coming back once more to stay. He's not coming back to go away again. But when he does come back, he's going to come back triumphantly as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will bring his people, the elect of God, unto himself. This is his second coming, and we or his shall be caught up to meet him in the earth. This is possible because of his first earthly sojourn. This is possible because of his first appearance here on earth as a baby. But when he does come, all men will, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. But when he first came, it was different. And when he first came, he came to open up the way. He came to conquer not the Roman armies. Jesus came to conquer sin once and for all. We read there Luke 9, 56. For the Son of Man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. We know that men were separated by their sins from God. And to redeem sinful man, we've been reading John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
and it just found a really good uh, translation of that, the Jewish Orthodox Bible. It says that God sent his unique, one-of-a-kind son that we might be saved. Philippians 2 and 7 said, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. He did this, came down quietly that he might pay the price, that he might pay the debt for our sins. Jesus became the propitiational lamb, the sacrifice for you and for me. He became our substitute on the cross. Came down quietly, born in the natural way, not conceived in the natural way, born in the natural way, grew up in the natural way, and then he entered his earthly ministry and died on the cross for our sins. I love that old chorus. I should have been crucified. I should have suffered and died. I should have hung on the cross in disgrace. But Jesus, God's son, took my place. You know, he did not come as some celestial champion in a blaze of glory the way they wanted him to. He did not come like that. He came quietly into the world. So quietly into the world that no one back then really knew what was happening. He came quietly and he transformed man's relationship with God. George MacDonald said they were all looking for a king to slay their foes and lift them high. Thy camest a baby, a little baby thing, that made a woman cry. You see, the Jews and people today are looking for a miraculous deliverance. They were looking for this, as we've said, this miraculous deliverance. But they didn't realize that God could come and establish his kingdom among men. God had come down and the sin barrier was now going to be removed. That thing that separated us from God, that gap was going to be filled that bridge was going to be built. That's a wonderful line from that hymn, Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span. What a wonderful God we serve. You see, people knew scriptures. They knew back then, Micah 5 and 2, that the Messiah would come out of Bethlehem. Well, Bethlehem, we're told, is five to six miles south of Jerusalem. It means house of bread. And originally, it was called Ephrath. In Genesis 35 and 19, it was the place where Rachel <coughs> was buried. And it was a small village. And in fact, Ruth and Boaz lived there. And this is where Ruth uh, gleaned Boaz's field. So it was in Bethlehem that David was anointed king. God chose this small, this seemingly insignificant place to bring forth his son. You know, we would have thought that it would have been done in a, a better way, a special way in Jerusalem, being born in a palace and all the, the, the maids and the servants tending to them. But it was in a quiet little town. And in fact, although we know it wasn't in a, a, a barn, but he was laid in a manger to sleep. This quiet way, although the lineage of David, he came through a poor family, not a rich family of great nobility. You know, if he had been born of someone rich at the time, it would have been well uh, uh, reported, well known, and many would have gathered. But this was a poor family. In fact, it says in Luke 24, to offer a sacrifice according to that which is in, said in the law of the Lord, a pair of t uh, turtle doves or two pigeons. So this is the kind which is prescribed in Luke 12 and 8. Sorry, Leviticus 12 and 8. 
And if she be not able to bring a lamb, then she shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for the burnt offering, the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for her, and she shall be clean. So he came through a poor family. Again, this was not something that the people would have expected. He didn't arrive, as I've said, on a great horse or a golden chariot. He didn't come and sit on a beautifully adorned, ornate throne. He lay in a manger, the feeding trough for animals. He wasn't adorned in royal robes or military armor. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes, plain strips of cloth. He wasn't hailed by men as a conquering hero. In fact, his first visitors were lowly shepherds. The first ones to come and see him were lowly shepherds. The first ones to whom it was told that the Messiah had come. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a king. Who was it? It was the angels told these shepherds. And when we look with the greatest respect at the simple yet miraculous way that Jesus arrived in his first advent, we get a true grasp of what Christmas means to us, really means to us as Christians. Long ago, a man named Sanaka said, what man needed above all was a hand let down to lift them up. It is the hand of Jesus which lifts a man out of the old life and into the new, out of sin into the goodness of God, out of shame into the glory. You see, this child, he came to take away our sin. Leslie Savage said, A baby's hands in Bethlehem were small and softly curled, but held within their dimpled grasp was the hope of all the world. I think that's beautiful. That a baby's hand in Bethlehem were small and softly curled, but held within their dimpled grasp the hope of all the world. You see, that was our hope. Not military deliverance, but deliverance from sin. And it was coming through this child, this baby born, this child lying in this manger as the shepherds beheld him. And as the wise men came, and it's believed he was two or three, as we know by the time the wise men came. But again, just looking at that child, looking at those hands, and how the hope of the world was resting in those hands. Jesus came that we might have life and might have it more abundantly. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. As we looked at Nicodemus, we seen that the Jews didn't think they were lost. They thought they'd inherited through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the merits of Abraham, and they were going to live in the kingdom of God forever, and everyone would be subservient to them. But he came to seek and save the lost. Born in a manger, because there was no room for him, we're told in the end. And as we look back at this baby Jesus, we pray that our hearts will be open and that we will indeed quietly not quietly, but loudly, praise and thank him for the great things that he did and how he came to take away our sins. Found a beautiful illustration by a gentleman called Paul Harvey. And I'll read it for you. Just give me a moment, please. One raw winter night, a man heard an irregular thumping sound against the kitchen storm door. 
He went to the window and watched as tiny shivering sparrows, attracted to the evident uh, warmth inside, beat against the glass. Touched, the farmer bundled up and trudged through fresh snow to open the barn for the struggling birds. He turned on the lights, tossed some hay in the corner, and sprinkled a trail of saltine crackers to direct them to the barn. But the sparrows, which had scattered in all directions when he emerged from the house, still hid in the darkness, afraid of him. He tried various tactics, circling behind the birds to drive them towards the barn, tossing cracker crumbs in the air towards them, retreating to his house to see if they'd flutter into the barn on their own. Nothing worked. He, a huge alien creature, had terrified them. The birds could not understand that he actually desired to help. He withdrew to his house and watched the doomed sparrows through a window. As he stirred, a thought hit him like lightning from a clear blue sky. If only I could become a bird, one of them, just for a moment, then I wouldn't frighten them so. I could show them the way to warmth and safety. At the same moment, another thought dawned on him. He had grasped the whole principle of the incarnation. A man's becoming a bird is nothing compared to God becoming a man. The concept of a sovereign being as big as the universe he created, confining himself to a human body, was and is too much for some people to believe. You know, if you know not Jesus as your Savior, let this time as we celebrate his birth change your relationship with God when you understand that this only begotten child, son of God, was God manifest in flesh, taking upon himself the form of man. Why? That he might die for our sins. Not that he might be a conquering warrior, hero. But the reality is he came to die, to take your place on the cross. And we hope and pray that everyone that hears us today will know Jesus as their Savior. And one day we'll stand with the countless millions and hail him as King of kings and Lord of lords. We'll be able to worship the Lord throughout eternity. Amen. Throughout all eternity. The wise men sought Jesus. When they found him, they worshiped him. And again, our prayer at this church is that you might find him and that you might worship him. The reality of what he did when he was born in Bethlehem you know, really should sink into our hearts as we think about it. We think about friends this time of year. We think about gatherings of families. But let's make it a time when we think about actually what God did for you and for me. He's worthy of our praise. What God did is he opened up that door that when he does return, if you know him as Savior, then you will either rise from your sleep or you will rise in the air with the dead in Christ and meet him and worship and praise him. And we will worship and praise him. We'll not be singing the eye of the tiger or simply the best. We'll be worshiping the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the world. And Jesus will not worry if you don't sing in, in, in tune. Amen. You know, you'll be that excited that you'll not be able to contain it. I love that word. It, uh, it's found in uh, Habakkuk 3. 
and it's the Hebrew, Hebrew word for joy, is gil. And it's being so overcome with emotion that you cannot stand still. You spin around with intense, intense emotion. And you know, people do that when they get excited and they see something that they really like. I remember being a really nice husband. I queued up from about three o'clock in the morning to buy Cliff Richard tickets for my wife and daughters. And we went to the King's Hall, wasn't it? We went to the King's Hall. And so we're all sitting there and it was quiet. You could hear, you know, the murmuring talking. But the minute he came on the stage, such an eruption of noise. People weren't asked, would you mind standing? They got on their feet. They weren't asked, would you give them a round of applause? They were clapping. They weren't asked, would you cheer? They were cheering. They were singing along his songs as I was trying to stay awake. But you know something? They'll not have to ask you to stand when Jesus comes back. Amen? He's coming back in glory. He's coming back as the conquering hero, the conquering king. And we are going to have such a wonderful time in eternity. I think when the Lord comes back, we'll look back in this life and wonder why we worried. Why we lost sleep worrying about things. Because we have an eternity ahead of us. Why? Because he came quietly down to earth, born in that staple that day, grew up quietly. There's many conjecture as to where he grew up and where he went. But the wonderful thing is on that day, when John was baptizing in the Jordan and he looked up and he seen Jesus coming and what did he say? He said, behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. I said the other week, church, it saddens me to think many evangelical Christians are trying to rebuild this third temple, trying to reinstate the sacrifices in the third temple. They have all the tools, we're told. And there are people training uh, to, to do this. Why? The once and for all sacrifice paid the debt for our sins. We don't need any other sacrifice. We don't need more animals killed. It might be the best of intentions, but you know something, church? For me, it's blasphemous. Because it's degrading the death of Christ on the cross. The once and for all sacrifice. You know, I've studied in, uh, in my master's, I think it was, I had to study uh, different beliefs, different religions. I know one thing they all had in common. To get into their paradise or their heaven or whatever it was they called it, they had to achieve something. They had to give some great sacrifice, even down to sacrificing their own lives. And what have we to do? We just have to look at the babe of Bethlehem and believe in him. Repent, turn from our sins and believe in that lamb of God who takes away our sins. We don't earn, we don't buy our salvation. He poured it out upon you and me with his grace and with his love. What a savior we serve. Amen. Amen. It's not too early for a Christmas message because people already have their trees up. I've seen you on Facebook. It's time to start celebrating what Jesus done that day when he was born as a little child, grew up as a man, 
and those hands were nailed to a cross to take away our sins. And for that, we thank him this morning. As Peter comes back, thank you we stand in his presence. And let's just worship him this morning. Let's just praise him for his...